Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We ask by your spirit that you would open our ears to hear what you were saying to us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. And my delight shall be in your commandments, which I have loved exceedingly. Now, those are the words of Psalm 119, verse 47. Those are the words that we read together just moments ago. And those words sound very good. But are they actually true? Is it really true that the commandments of God, all those rules and laws that you find in the Bible, is it really true that they are something we should take delight in? Something we should love exceedingly? Because I'm going to be honest with you. I have been a Christian pretty much my entire life, and I have rarely thought of the rules and commands of God as something that I love. If anything, it's often felt like those rules are the worst part of being a Christian. And sometimes, you know, it's to the point where you almost feel kind of resentful about it. You remember that song that Billy Joel sang, Only the Good Die Young? Remember how it goes? They say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. And I'll tell you, there have been times in my life where that's kind of how I felt, whether I'd admit it or not, where I've felt a little resentful that just because I'm a Christian, that means that there's a whole lot of things that I'm not allowed to do that I wish I could do. And I remember sometimes when I was young, I remember looking with envy upon people that came to faith later in life. Because they'd always have this testimony about how they lived some wild and reckless life. And they gave that up when they came to Jesus. And I thought, well, at least you got to enjoy yourself for a while. (laughs) At least you had some fun. All I've ever known are rules and commandments. And sometimes it feels like all that they're there for is just to make me feel bad about myself and to keep me from having a good time. And yet, for some reason, the psalmist says that he takes delight in the commandments, that he really and genuinely treasures them. And it's not just a stray comment that he makes in one verse. Here's some Bible trivia for you. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the whole Bible. It is a poem that goes on and on for 176 verses. And the whole thing, all 176 verses of that poem, it's all dedicated to a single theme. The whole thing is a long, sometimes seemingly endless, meditation on the beauty and the goodness and the blessing of God's law. Blessed Happy, blissfully happy is how he begins. Blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord and who keep his testimonies. Later on in the poem, he describes the commandments as more delightful than riches, more valuable to him than thousands of gold and silver pieces, sweeter than the taste of honey. 
He says that it's God's law that has been to him, that has been a comfort in times of affliction, a light amidst the darkness, a refuge in moments of distress. If your law, he says, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. According to Psalm 119, there is almost nothing that is more valuable, more life-giving, more worthy of our time and attention in this world than the commandments of God. But again, I ask, why? Why is the law good? And to understand that, we really need to understand first what the law is for. What is its actual purpose? Now that's a question, interestingly, that's a question that early Protestant theologians talked about a lot. And they actually came up with a threefold answer. So I didn't come up with the three points in my sermon today. They just did it for me. A threefold answer. Three distinct purposes or uses, as they like to call it. The uses of God's law. At first, they said, the law is good because it functions as a kind of restraint in human society. I just think about the nation of Israel. If you read books like Exodus and Deuteronomy, you'll see that the Ten Commandments are hardly the only laws that God gave Israel. He gave them a lot of laws. There were laws that governed property disputes. There were laws that talked about what the fair treatment of workers was. There were laws that explained to you what you owe to, to widows and to orphans and to immigrants. There were laws that were meant to protect women from sexual abuse, laws that protected debtors from generational poverty, laws that protected citizens from tyrannical kings. In and of themselves, these laws, they didn't transform Israel into some morally virtuous or perfectly just, just society. That's not what their purpose was. But they did, they did establish objective standards and norms of right and wrong. Standards that kept the Israelites from just using or abusing their neighbors however they saw fit. And that's one of the reasons that law in general is a good thing. Not because law can create a just society, but because it can establish standards of behavior. Laws set expectations for what we owe to one another. Norms for how people should be treated and what to do when they are mistreated. And in that way, God's law protected those who were the most vulnerable in society, protected them and acted as a restraint from the darkest and worst impulses of human behavior. And if you don't think that's true, just think about the times when the law went away. Well, there are plenty of times when that happened in Israel's history, times when either they lost the law or they just completely disregarded it. And I'll tell you, it was never good at least it was certainly never good for those who tended to be the victims in society. The very last sentence of the book of Judges 
is one of the saddest, most tragic sentences in the Bible. The whole book of Judges is pretty depressing and sad. But you get to the very end, and the last sentence says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That might sound kind of nice, but I'll tell you, that was not good news for women or for children or for immigrants or for indentured servants. And the same kind of thing continues to happen today. So I came across a book recently called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. It's a very catchy title. Um, and it's certainly not the first time I've seen someone writing something complaining about the sexual revolution. You know, there's endless books and articles that have been written by religious conservatives lamenting the decline in sexual morality since the 1960s. Nothing new. But what caught my interest is the fact that the author of this book was neither religious nor conservative. She was a, a, a left-leaning intellectual who is agnostic and a self-described feminist. And her argument against the sexual revolution had nothing to do with the fact that it's somehow a violation of biblical standards of morality. Her argument is that it was based on a lie. Because what we were told, what we were told is that if we just got rid of all those old, prudish, backwards, old-fashioned norms and regulations, then we could enter this wonderful new world where everyone could enjoy pleasure without guilt or judgment. Free love, toleration for all. It sounds really wonderful. But that's not what happened. It turns out that abandoning all those old rules and norms wasn't good for everybody. It was good for some people. The Hugh Hefners of the world, they got what they wanted. But millions of women paid the cost. That's what Louise Perry, this author, it's what she documents in her book, how millions of women have paid the cost and how they continue to pay it today still. Now, my point here is not about the sexual revolution. My point is the law is good. And one of the reasons it's a good thing is because it is a restraint, because it curbs our worst impulses, because it protects the people who would otherwise be harmed and mistreated if everyone just does what is right in their own eyes. And for that reason alone, we should treasure the law of God. But that's not its only purpose. It's not just a restraint in society, it also has a distinct purpose for the people of God. For us, it is a guide. For us, it is instruction on how to live, how to conduct ourselves day to day. Ezekiel chapter 36 foretells a time when the Lord will give the gift of his own spirit to his people. And I will put my spirit within you, the Lord says. And listen to this, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now that prophecy came true hundreds of years later on the day of Pentecost, which interestingly, according to Jewish tradition, is the same day of the year when Moses was given the law at Sinai. 
You see, Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost for the Jews was a celebration of the gift of the law. And that is the day that God gave the gift of his spirit to the first Christians. Because that's what the spirit is for. So that we might walk in God's statutes and obey his law. And one of the ways that the Holy Spirit does that, one of the primary ways that he leads us as the people of God and enables us to walk in these statutes and laws is precisely by using the written word of God, using the written law of God in the Old and New Testament to teach us the way of life we should pursue. Now, that might sound like an obvious point. I'm a preacher, you're at church. Of course, I'm gonna say we should look to the Bible as a guide for morality and how we should live. Fair enough. But, I, you know, even though I assume that all of you would probably agree with me on that point, I also assume that if you're like me, at least compared to this psalmist, you probably spend relatively little amount of time consulting and studying God's word to know how to conduct yourself in your daily life. And I think there are at least two reasons for that. The first one, and again, I'm using myself as a standard here, but I'm just gonna assume some of y'all have my faults. So the first one is that one of the reasons we don't really value the guidance of the law or God's word is because we tend to assume most of the time that we don't actually need it. We tend to assume most of the time we already know what is right and wrong. We trust our own instincts. We can see what is good and what is bad. And we don't really need someone to explain it to us. You know what strikes me about Psalm 119 when I read it? Psalm 119 was written by someone who did not trust his own instincts. He knew that he was prone to error. He assumed it. He didn't think he already knew what was right and wrong. He talks about having a need to store up God's word in his heart, to protect himself from error and sin. He says that he asks God to teach him his commandments so that he can have good judgment, which means he assumes he doesn't have good judgment already. He says that he studies night and day, that he studies and meditates on the law of God so that he may become wise. He obviously assumes he's not wise already. I think that most of us, most of us just tend to operate with much less of an awareness of our own tendency to error. We just trust ourselves more. And so we don't spend near as much time or energy looking to God's counsel to guide us how to live. That's one reason. Another reason I think that we don't tend to do this as much is because we've had some bad experiences. You know, if you've spent any time among Christians, you have probably seen how Christians can sometimes get a little obsessive and a little over the top when it comes to trying to find rules from the Bible for every aspect of your life. There is a cottage industry of books out there promising biblical rules and principles for every little tiny arena of life. There are are books that give you all the biblical rules for exactly how to organize your own personal finances. There's rules that that give you the biblical secrets and principles for dieting and fasting. I saw a book recently uh, that, that, that helps teach you, gives you biblical guidance on how to garden better. 
There, there is even a book that promises you a biblical approach to curing cancer. No joke. I'm sure you have your own stories about strange ways that you've seen Christians apply the Bible, and we all know that we can get a bit obsessive about coming up with rules. But just because the commands of God have often been misused or misapplied, that doesn't mean that we don't have deep need for what the Bible says as a guide for the way that we should live, what we should value, what we should pursue, what we should avoid. In fact, this, uh, this coming September, Christ Church, we're actually gonna host two of the nation's leading Old Testament scholars. So we're gonna have a Saturday seminar. And the whole theme of the seminar is what insights the 10 commandments can give us for modern life. So if you wanna know, okay, well, we've seen people do this in weird ways. What's a really fruitful way to, to read the Bible or to read God's law and to say, what does it have to teach us for modern life? There you go. I've, I've already advertised it. You can come to that seminar. But that's, that's the second reason that the law is a good thing. It's a second reason we desperately need it because we, we are prone to error. We don't automatically know what is best for us. We need someone to teach us. So the law restrains injustice and the law teaches us what is good. But there's also another reason that the law is good. Another reason we should love it. And that is because the law tells us who we really are. When the Protestant reformers talked about this, they liked to use the metaphor of a mirror. They said the law is like a mirror because if you take it seriously, if you really listen to what God requires of you, what he asks, if you use it as an objective way to assess your own life, then all of the false pretenses that you've come to believe about yourself and all your misplaced self-confidence will quickly come crashing down. And you will see yourself for who you really are in the mirror of the law, which is an unrighteous, unholy, self-deluded sinner. Hey, the story of King David is a good illustration of this. You might remember what happens after that terrible series of heinous things he does with Bathsheba. And right after that, David does not seem to show any real signs of remorse or contrition or just self-awareness. In fact, when he's told a story about a rich man stealing from a poor man, David has the gall to respond with self-righteous indignation. And you want to just kind of grab him right then and say, what is wrong with you? Have you looked in the mirror? And that's exactly what the prophet Nathan, who is the spokesperson for the word of God, that's what Nathan does. He comes to David and he says, look in the mirror. You are the man. That's what he tells him. And that's exactly what the law of God does for each and every one of us. If we're listening, if we're willing to hear it honestly and humbly, we all live with some kind of self-delusion. It may be small, but we're all a bit self-deceived. We all think we're a little better off than we really are. I mean, you know, we'll admit that we make mistakes and 
we've got some flaws and we've done things that we shouldn't have. Still, we like to think of ourselves as pretty decent people. You know, at least we try. Certainly better than that guy over there. But that's not what the Bible says, is it? Jesus will not congratulate you for managing to avoid having an affair. Jesus says, if you even lust after a woman who is not your wife, you are already an adulterer in your heart. And Jesus will not tell you you're a good person because you're usually nice to your family and friends. Jesus' standard is that you are required to love your enemies, the people who dislike you, that you are required to pray for those who slander you behind your back and to turn your cheek when someone hits you. And just in case you're thinking, well, you know, Jesus, he just raises it to ridiculous standards. Think about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments do not simply prohibit you from stealing. They prohibit you from coveting. You are not allowed to even want, to even desire what belongs to your neighbor, not their house, not their car, not their job, not their friends, not their family, not anything. And the Bible does not say that you're a good person as long as you try. The apostle James says, if you keep the whole law and you fail at a single point, you are guilty of it all. You know, it's one of the reasons that I used to really dislike reading the Bible, especially all these rules and commands. Because no matter how hard I tried to be a good Christian, anytime I spent time in the Bible and tried to take it seriously, I always came away feeling guilty. And you know what I've come to realize? That's the point. You're supposed to feel like that. And that's actually a good thing. That's one of the reasons the law is good. That's why Martin Luther said that we should use the Ten Commandments every day as an objective standard for self-examination. Because it's not a good thing to continue living with self-delusion. The law isn't there to flatter us. It's there to tell us the truth, that we are sinners, that we are the guilty, that apart from the grace of God as we pray, that apart from the grace of God, there is no health in us. The law is good because it shows us our desperate need for the mercy of God, because it is what drives us to the cross. I don't know if you've noticed this, but you know this is what's happening in our worship service every single week. Every week we come together and we start off hearing a summary of the law. Love, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there's a good reason that when we hear those words, our response is, Lord, have mercy. And there's a good reason that later in the service, we all pray a prayer where we acknowledge we have not loved God with our whole heart and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. When we all gather together in the presence of God and we hear his law proclaimed, we're not supposed to feel flattered. We're supposed to have the experience of looking at ourselves clearly in a mirror realizing who we are and recognizing 
our deep need, hearing to ourselves the words from the prophet Nathan, you are the man. Because it's what reminds us of our need for mercy. Because that's what reminds us of our need for the grace of Christ. That is what drives us to the cross. And when you come, when you come forward and you kneel down and you hold out your hands to receive bread and wine, you're not taking the posture of someone who has it all together. You're not even taking the posture of someone who's doing pretty well. You're taking the posture of someone who has looked into a mirror and seen what a beggar they are and realized your desperate need for grace. You know, when I was young, I used to think that all the rules and commandments in the Bible, that they were the, one of the worst things about being a Christian. And now I know better. The law of the Lord is good. It is good for us. It's something to be celebrated and treasured. And my delight, and my delight shall be in your commandments, which I have loved exceedingly. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.